everyone. Welcome to the very first episode of Legal Matters, the new legal podcast brought to you by CAR. My name is Jana Gardner, and I am here with my co-host, Dana Spears. Hi, everyone. Dana and I are both attorneys here at CAR in the Member Legal Services Department. That means we take calls in the legal hotline, but we also write educational materials, conduct webinars, and generally do everything we can to make sure CAR members have all the legal information and advice that they need to stay in business and stay out of trouble. We are excited to bring you this podcast, your newest source for legal information from CAR. Our plan for the podcast is to have a new episode for you once a month, where we will highlight important legal topics, new laws, new forms, new cases, and basically anything that is important for you to know about. We will have some recurring segments highlighting sample legal hotline questions and spotlighting certain CAR forms that are often forgotten or commonly misunderstood. In between these main episodes, we may have some bonus content as well in the form of some instructional stories and case spotlights from CAR Assistant General Counsel Neil Kalin. That is more than enough of an introduction for now. Let's jump into our first segment, our legal hotline question of the month. All right, it's time for our first hotline question of the month. And the idea with this segment is going to be highlighting interesting questions that we get on the hotline, calls that come in really often. And later in this podcast, we'll actually give you a way of contacting us if you want to write in with a question that you've called into the hotline with or that you think is interesting and you'd like to hear addressed. You can write into the show and maybe we'll feature it in a future episode. Hmm. And so this first question is also going to double as a form spotlight where we're going to take an opportunity to highlight interesting forms or ones that are commonly misunderstood, misused, or just generally not well enough known in the CAR library. So let's get started. The question this month is one of the most common ones we get on the hotline. And basically what will happen is someone will call in and they'll say, my listing is about to expire, but I have offers coming in and the sellers agreed to extend the listing to give us some more time to get this deal done. I can't find the form to extend the listing. I've searched for extension, listing extension, nothing's coming up. So what the caller always wants to know is, how do I do this? And Dana, what do they do? Well, Jana, actually what you do is use CAR form MT. Now, until this summer, it was known as modification of terms slash addendum to authorization and right to sell, comma, acquired a rent or other agreement between principal and broker. Okay, that's a crazy mouthful. <laughs> it's really a mouthful. Um, but uh, <clears throat> it was recently renamed this summer, and now it's called modification of listing, comma, buyer representation or other agreement between principal and broker. Still a bit of a mouthful, but much shorter. A lot better. Yeah, a, lot a lot easier. Um, so what would you say then? How, how should someone find this form? Because like you said, that's still kind of a long title. What's the easiest way to find this in zip form? It is. If you're in zip forms, go to the search box. Just type in the word modification, and it should come up. Modification of listing, you'll see there. Um, there are several versions of it. I think one number through one. five or something. Right. Yeah. And you just pick number one or whichever modification you're so on. If you're on your fifth extension, yeah. use number five. <laughs> exactly. And just a couple other things this form can do if you need to change the listing price, alter the commission amount. Any type of term, right? Any modification, mm -hmm. right? Makes perfect sense. All right. Just have your client sign it, you sign it, and, and you're good to go. All right. Sounds good. Now let's move on to this month's main topic. The main topic for this month is top five RPA mistakes. So we're going to run through the five biggest mistakes that we see realtors making based on calls in the legal hotline, conversations with realtors, things like that. These are five fairly simple, 
you know, not too complicated issues, but really easy to make mistakes that really can trip people up and cause a lot of problems in transactions. Exactly. So we're going to run through them and hopefully make sure that none of you ever make any mistakes <laughs> like this ever again in any of your transactions. <laughs> Let's go ahead and get started with number one, all about counting days in the contract. When a CAR agreement or addendum says you have three or five or 14 days to perform some action, what is meant by days? In CAR purchase agreements, whether it's the residential purchase agreement, the residential income purchase agreement, the vacant land purchase agreement, or another of our purchase agreements, days means calendar days, Sunday through Monday. However, after acceptance, the deadline for performing any action required by the agreement cannot fall on a Saturday, Sunday, or legal holiday, and is instead the next business day. So for example, if acceptance was on a Wednesday, and note that would be day zero. Mm-hmm. Right, acceptance day zero. Mm-hmm. And a buyer, let's say, has three days to provide verification of his down payment, mm-hmm. which is how it's set up in our contract. Right. Well, that performance would fall due on the following Saturday. Right. Right. Um, Wednesday was day zero, mm-hmm. Thursday day one, Friday day two, Saturday day three. Exactly. And because it falls on that Saturday, he would actually have until the following Monday to provide that verification because performance cannot happen on a weekend. Mm-hmm. And that's assuming that Monday wasn't a holiday. Right. They can't, yeah, that know, would push it in even one more day. Yes. Yeah. All right. So let's give another example. Sure. So another example that comes up a lot is counting the days until performance is due after you receive a notice, typically like a notice to buyer to perform. Mm-hmm. So buyer, let's say, hasn't removed contingencies. Seller sends a notice to perform. What is the deadline? Well, first you figure out that the day that the buyer receives the notice is day zero. So when counting, if you receive the notice on a Thursday, that's your day zero. Mm -hmm. Then day one would be Friday, day two on Saturday again. And again, that performance can't fall on a weekend. So assuming Monday is not a holiday, the buyer has until Monday to perform the action. And keep in mind that the buyer has until the literal end of the calendar day Mm -hmm. to take that action. Doesn't matter what time the notice was given, you get the full calendar days. So buyer has until 11.59 p.m on the deadline, in this case the Monday, to perform the action required by the notice. Uh, Perfect. So in that example, the buyer knows that um, when you receive the notice, Mm -hmm. obviously he got it. But how does a seller know when the buyer actually got the notice? Great question. So that comes up a lot where you sent the notice out, do you start counting right away? Say, well, you know, hopefully the person got it basically right when you sent it, but you need to be sure basically when actually it was personally received. So you want to ask for, you know, a response, email confirmation. Uh, You can get confirmation via text message. You know, at the very least, if you don't get a response, try calling, try to get the buyer's agent on the phone and get them to say, yes, got your notice. Then you know it's been personally received and you can start your counting from there. Right. That's verbal confirmation, but good enough for you to start counting Mm -hmm. properly. Exactly. All right, so let's move on to our next RPA mistake. This one concerns the COP and SPRP forms. Sure, so it's very common these days for you to encounter what we sometimes call chain transactions, contingent transactions. Mm -hmm. Most commonly that's going to be the buyer needs to sell the current property they own in order to purchase this house they wanna buy. But also, sometimes the seller doesn't want to be obligated to sell their house unless they know they have somewhere to go. They have a replacement property that they can move into. Mm -hmm. So the common mistake that we see with this, first of all, is just not making it a contingency at all, and then your client's in a bad shape, or trying to sort of do it with just a shorthand or or do it too quickly in the contract. Um, But what I mean by that is just sometimes agents will write in a clause in the contract where they say, 
you know, sales contingent on buyer selling their house. Or seller contingent right. on finding property. Exactly. Or, yeah, deal mm-hmm. contingent on seller finding replacement yeah. property. And that's all that's said. Well, and then sometimes down the line in the escrow, there'll be a dispute and someone will call us and they'll say, well, what does this mean? And I'll say, I don't know what that means. <laughs> that's really vague. You exactly. know, and you wrote it into the contract. What did everyone mean by that? Mm-hmm. And so the good news is we have forms to deal with these situations. The first form, and the one that's used the most often, is shorthand is called the COP form, stands for Contingency for Sale of Buyer's Property. Um, and there's actually a box on the purchase contract, paragraph four, where you can check to say this deal is contingent on buyers selling their current property. Attaches the COP form, gives you a lot of good details about the time frames and obligations and what everybody's rights and responsibilities are in the contract. So basically it tells you whether or not the buyer's property is already in escrow. If it's not, how long do they have to get into escrow? What happens if it falls out of escrow? Uh, How long does the contingency last? What happens if the seller gets a backup offer that they want to then take that instead of this contingent offer? What can they do? Uh, All of that is covered in the COP form. And including time periods. Exactly. You You know how long Mm -hmm. they have to do certain things. Does it just go on forever or not? Mm -hmm. It's all covered in there. So that's a really good form and an important one to use. The one that people know about even less, though, mm. is the SPRP form, Seller's Purchase of Replacement Property. This is a situation where we too often see agents, listing agents usually encounter offers just writing, sale is contingent on seller purchasing home of choice mm. or seller finding replacement property. Right. Or, or forgetting sort of, it altogether. Or That's, just not even mentioning it altogether, right. which is even worse. Which can uh, leave your seller out. You exactly. Know. You don't want to end up in a situation where the seller has nowhere to go exactly. when they sell their house. So what you can do is you can use this form, the SPRP, Seller's Purchase of Replacement Property, and it says very specifically that the contract is contingent on seller finding a replacement property. And it's actually a two-part contingency. Uh, The first part says seller has a certain number of days to find and get into escrow, get an offer accepted on their replacement property. Or in the alternative, if you're already in escrow on a right. property, it, it gives you a spot to exactly to indicate that right. and say seller's already in escrow. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, that's when the second part of the contingency comes into play, which is closing escrow on the replacement property. Because even if the seller gets into contract, they want the reassurance that if something happens and that deal doesn't close, that they're not going to be left out in the cold, that it's contingent on them closing, which doesn't mean they have to close escrow first on the replacement property because they might need to close their sale in order to make the purchase and that's fine. It just means that if something happens and it becomes clear the deal isn't going to close, then they can cancel. They're no longer obligated to sell their house to the buyer and they're not going to be left out on the street. Um, And so the main purpose of this form or the most important thing about it, again, is the time frames. It tells you how many days they have to get into escrow. It has an option for if once the seller gets into escrow on a replacement property, if they need to maybe adjust some time frames. Right, if they the need sale, a little more time. Right, they can do that as well. Mm-hmm. And so strongly recommend using that the SPRP. Well. What's interesting about these is buyers and sellers use the same form to remove these contingencies. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, they know about buyer the mm-hmm. you know contingency removal, which is CAR form CR. Yes. But don't realize how mm-hmm. does you know how does the seller remove contingencies? I had this question literally yesterday from someone who said, "Hey, my seller got into escrow on the replacement property. What form do I use to tell the buyer that my seller has found their replacement property?" 
And I said, well, they, they removed the finding replacement property contingency. And she said, well, I know, but what form do they use? And I said, the contingency <laughs> removal form. But it's true. You're not used to using that for sellers. And yeah. so you'll see at the very bottom of the CR form, there's a tiny little section for seller contingency removal. Once the seller has gotten into escrow on their replacement property, right. they can remove that contingency. And there's both of them. They have That's one, two. They have one for finding and, and one, one for, for closing. closing. So if in the event they actually have closed escrow, they can always remove that contingency at that point as well. Exactly. So COP, SPRP for your contingent transactions. Don't forget it. Okay, so let's move on to our next RPA mistake. All right, so I wanted to take this opportunity to talk about what I think is the most misunderstood and I think the most asked about section of the entire RPA, and that is paragraph 7B2 in the purchase agreement. And this section has to do with inspections and minimum mandatory government retrofits. So the call we get is, what does that mean? And the mistake that people make is leaving it blank. Um, it's confusingly worded. It's kind of vague. Uh, agents don't really understand it. Their clients definitely don't understand it. And so people tend to just not check either of the boxes for buyer or seller to take on this responsibility because they don't know what it means. But that's a really big problem, right? You don't want to leave that issue for later in the escrow if it does become relevant in your transaction. It's really important to decide these things up front. So what I normally do to explain to people how this section works is take a step back. Paragraph 7B1 in the allocation of cost paragraph talks about between buyer and seller who's going to be responsible for costs associated with certain things like smoke detector installation, carbon monoxide detector installation, and water heater strapping for earthquake safety. And everyone understands that paragraph because it very clearly addresses these three requirements. And the reason those three requirements are called out is those are the California statewide requirements. All three of those things have to be dealt with whenever you sell any property, residential property in the state of California. Easy By enough. everyone. By oh, everyone, oh exactly. God. You got to have that stuff taken mm -hmm. care of no matter where you are in the state. So that's straightforward enough. 7B2 is an attempt to deal with the fact that what we have here is a statewide contract that's used in multiple cities and counties, some of which might have additional requirements, further things you have to do to be in compliance with the law whenever you sell a piece of property. So 7B1 references who's going to pay the cost of compliance with any inspections or reports that might be required as a condition of closing escrow under any law. So if the city or county has a law that says you have to have a certain inspection or report in order to close escrow, who's going to be responsible for that? And usually that's not too costly. Right. That's having an inspection done, having a report run. Normally that's not a, a major undertaking that anyone really stresses about. The bigger concern comes with part two, 7B2, which talks about who's going to bear the cost of compliance with any other government required retrofits that might be required in accordance with uh, any law as a condition of closing. And that's a bigger issue because maybe you have that inspection or report done and then it calls out major repairs that are required. Someone's going to be responsible for getting those repairs done if the law requires it in order to sell the property. So you want to decide up front who's going to take on that responsibility, buyer or seller. And so can you give us some examples of, of what kind of inspections or work repairs might be required? Sure. So, for example, sewer lateral inspections and clearances, mm -hmm. uh, weather stripping, GFCI requirements, um, also water conserving plumbing fixtures, which are required on all properties, um, but they're only a point of sale 
requirement in certain cities and counties. So exactly. Those are things you have to check into. Right, exactly. And some, they may be expensive. Some are, some aren't. Mm-hmm. And so you might want to speak to your seller or buyer, whoever has agreed to pay those costs and cap them. Right, exactly. Make sure they know what they're getting into. And so another major question we get on the hotline after I talk to someone about what all this paragraph all means, they want to know, well, how do I find out if this applies? Because it doesn't apply everywhere. There's plenty of places that don't have any additional requirements mm-hmm. beyond just your statewide smoke detector kind of stuff. Um, and so, you know, it's a fair question to ask. Usually what I tell people is if you close a lot of deals in the same area, same city and county, you'd probably know by now, although new laws do get passed. And so it's always a good idea to double check if you're not sure. But you want to reach out to various resources that are available to you to get this information. If you're doing a deal in a new area, you can check with any broker colleagues who close a lot of deals there. Uh, escrow officers are a really good resource. They make it their business to know what is required in order to close an escrow where they are. So you can always reach out to a trusted escrow officer. Maybe a local association would have that information for you. Exactly. We get a lot of calls here at CAR, but since we're statewide, we're not always the best resource for what's required in your particular city or county. You can always try your local association. They may have their own forms or at least have resources or information relating to this. Um, As a last resort, you can always try contacting or your client can contacting the city or county directly. Some city or county websites are really useful resources, some less so. You can always put a call into the city uh, building department and see if they have any additional information for you. But regardless, the most important things to remember from this paragraph are to not leave it blank, to make sure if there are going to be costs, they're going to be allocated upfront, either buyer or seller, and to do a little research at the beginning of the transaction to find out what the requirements are so no one gets hit with a surprise that could potentially blow up your deal at the very end of the escrow period. All right, Dana, what's our next major RPA mistake? Well, another top five mistake is not reading, understanding, and designating items to be included and excluded from a sale in paragraph eight of the RPA. The first thing paragraph 8 reminds us is that just because items are listed as included or excluded in the MLS, in flyers, or other marketing materials, that doesn't mean that they are included or excluded from the sale, unless they are also specified as included or excluded in paragraph 8 of the RPA. Mm -hmm. So the extent of the agreement between buyer and seller for the sale of property and any items included or excluded is limited to what's in the RPA and any addenda. Right, makes sense, it has to be in the contract. Has to be in the contract. By default, the RPA in paragraphs 8B1 and 8B2 include many items that are commonly forgotten about during a transaction, such as window coverings and... Sometimes lighting fixtures, ceiling fans, security systems and alarms, water fountains, water softeners, and a lot of other things. Yeah, all those purifiers, people Mm -hmm. don't think about that, but those things um, are included by default. Mm -hmm. And there are more things on there, so take a look at that paragraph. And that's in addition to fixtures and fittings that are attached to the property. Mm -hmm. And in addition to that, 8B3 allows you to include items that are not there by default. So if your client wants anything included, that's where you would put that. Paragraph 8C allows you to exclude items from the sale. There are some there by default, like audio and video equipment and furnishings, but it also provides space for you to exclude additional items that your seller does not want to leave behind or that your buyer does not wish to have. Mm -hmm. So you want to be careful when you're doing that. Now, let's say your seller wants to keep a particular light fixture or ceiling fan that Mm -hmm. it's, you know, you know, included by mm-hmm. default, then you have to exclude that item specifically in paragraph 8C. Mm-hmm. 
All right. Note, there are special check boxes for the inclusion of all refrigerators, all stoves, and all washer and dryers. And these boxes must be checked to include the items or they will be excluded. Mm-hmm. And all means all, right? Right, exactly. And that's something people forget about a lot, which is you check a box to say all refrigerators are included. The seller might not remember or realize that, that applies to their custom wine fridge that mm-hmm. they had created or their extra freezer that's in the garage. So all does mean all in the property. And if the seller wants to keep any of those, they better read carefully and, and make sure they address it in the contract. Right. And make sure it's properly designated on the RPA. Yes, I'm keeping it. Include it. No, I'm not. Exclude it. Mm-hmm. Okay, Jana. So what's up next? So another big mistake we see a lot in the RPA is when people misuse or misunderstand an as-is clause Mm -hmm. in the contract. We get a lot of questions on the hotline where someone writes an offer and someone counters back and says, this is going to be an as-is sale or the property is sold in as-is condition. And often I think when people do this, it's because they maybe misunderstand the terms of the contract or what they're trying to accomplish with using that language. The main thing I like to point out to people is that our contract already is an as-is contract. It has an as-is clause in it, right? Built into it. All contracts uh, from CAR are essentially as-is contracts. And that's in paragraph 11, Paragraph 11, condition of property, says that the property is sold in its as-is present condition as of the time the offer is accepted. So basically, you know, when you get into contract, that's the condition of the property. Obviously, buyers can request repairs, they can negotiate for things during escrow, but by default in the contract, unless otherwise agreed in writing, the contra- it is as is. The seller's not obligated to do anything unless they agreed to specifically. Right. So the two mistakes I really see in how this gets used is either it's just kind of redundant, either the language is already there, so there's really no need to put it into a counteroffer, you're not really changing anybody's rights or responsibilities, mm-hmm. or uh, sometimes it's used in a way where people might think they're accomplishing something that they might not be doing. So, for example, if a buyer writes an offer and they ask for uh, Section 1 pest, you know, pest report and Section 1 clearance, and the seller counters back property sold as is. Right. What does that mean? Yeah, what does that mean? The contract already said as is. Are you saying you're not going to do the pest clearance? Is that what you meant? It's a little bit unclear. Right. So I always advise listing agents, sellers, if you want to counter out some request specifically, say that. Don't just say property sold as is, the contract already says that. Say seller will not provide any, any repair work, one, any right, section right. one clearance, anything mm-hmm. like that, and just be as clear as possible. Uh, don't sort of be too general, be specific, and rely on the fact that, you know, contract already says as is, don't need to say that again. Address what you want to address and go from there. Exactly, and if they mean that the seller is not going to make any repairs, mm-hmm. um, what using it in that way is also yeah, not effectual. It, it doesn't really, because people will put that in and then they'll get really upset if someone requests repairs. And well, someone can always request repairs. Right, you know, you can tell them, yeah. as I warned you, we're not interested in doing any, mm-hmm. but it's, there's nothing you can put in the contract that's going to forbid someone from requesting repairs. So if the seller is just not interested in repairs or credits, you can communicate that to the buyer and set expectations accordingly. But just keep in mind that, you know, there's always that possibility that after inspections, the buyer might have some requests, and it's sort of always open for negotiation, especially as long as you have those contingencies in your right. contract. and a seller can say no. Ex- exactly. They can always say no. 
Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us for our very first episode of the Legal Matters Podcast. Yes, thank you, everyone. So this has been really great. Um, as a reminder, this is just the newest way that we're reaching out to you as part of the Member Legal Services Department, but we already have a lot of services and resources available for you. Uh, obviously, for CAR members, the Legal Hotline is here to mm-hmm. take your questions. You can always reach out to us, 213-739-8282. 9 to 6, Monday through Friday, 10 to 2 on Saturdays. If you have a transactional question, call, talk to one of the member legal services attorneys, and we're more than happy to help you out with any of your legal issues. And, you know, beyond just calling us on the phone, we actually have a lot of other resources available on car.org, on our website that you might not be aware of. We have and those are available 24 hours 24 a day. 24 hours a day, exactly. 24-7, you can go to car.org. You can check out our legal tools where we have sort of quick hit informational topics on various issues, little one-page guides, little PowerPoint presentations, videos, things like that. We obviously have our legal Q&As. We do our monthly legal live webinars on various topics. Sometimes it's CAR attorneys, sometimes it's guest speakers. Uh, We have our disclosure charts on our website, tell you all about the various disclosures you need on your transactions. And there's even more. So go to car.org, go to the risk management section and see everything that Member Legal has to offer. Right. And if you want to reach out to us or request a question to be featured in our question of the month, or maybe suggest a CAR form to be highlighted in our form spotlight, or suggest any other topic that you think we should cover, go ahead and send us an email at legalpodcast at car.org. That's legalpodcast at car.org. Yeah, send us questions and suggestions there, and hopefully they'll make it into a future podcast. Perfect. All right. Thanks so much, everyone. Goodbye. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.